The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast, where this week we have another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. Each week, Someone They Knew tells another story from the Court TV archives of a person victimized not by a complete stranger, but instead by someone close to them. In the case of this episode, the victim was Misty Morse, a 22-year-old Florida woman who, like a lot of single women her age, had a number of men in her life, but could one of them be capable of killing her and then callously disposing of her body in a local river? Utilizing interviews with Todd Goodyear, the former commander of the Brevard County Sheriff's Office, forensic analyst Melissa Fernandez, prosecutor Russ Bausch, and defense attorney Gregory Eisenmanger, this episode shows how the police and prosecutors used groundbreaking science to bring Misty Morse's killer to justice. Here is someone they knew, man's best friend. This is the Court TV Podcast. up into his backyard was the body of a young woman. The victim becomes important. Who are they? What's their background? I talked to her about mass accident. There were a number of other people who could have equally committed this crime. DNA evidence is the gold standard. Juries see a tiny bit of evidence and jump to wild conclusions. He is the killer. The towns in Brevard County along the east coast of Florida attract a beach-loving crowd. Endless sunshine, crystal clear waves, and 72 miles of pristine sand they call the Space Coast. It's safe, fun, and for many, a place to have a good time. That is, until the party ends. It was a typical July morning in Brevard County, Florida hot, muggy, the kind of muggy where you feel like you're walking through soup when you step outside. And this retired judge stepped out onto his back lawn on South Merritt Island, and he noticed this really pungent smell. And he followed the scent to the edge of his property and found there was a, what he thought at first was a dead manatee that had washed up into his backyard. And then he quickly realized it was shocked to find that it was the body of a young woman. So of course that starts the investigation. Not knowing what you have, could it be a drowning? Could it be somebody fell off a boat? Until you get to the body and actually take a look at it, then you get a little bit clearer picture of what happened. When they got to the body, they found out that it was bound, had duct tape on it. At this point, it looks more like a homicide investigation is going to take place. A lot of care was taken by our dive team to make sure that she was collected as well as could be done. Police believe that her body had been in the water for about three days, so heavily decomposed. There's many items of evidence on a body that can be potentially helpful for a case. It depends where the body is found. Water crime scenes are very difficult. The water is going to be one of the worst enemies to trace evidence because water bathes a person or any object. And then decomposition on top of that is also going to create its own issues when it comes to evidence. 
any type of touch DNA or blood evidence that may have been on a person or fingerprints, hairs, fibers, those type of things, there's a really great chance that they're going to be washed away when a body is in water for uh, any amount of time. In this case with the water, you know you have to take a lot of care because anything you do, you could lose it. It could wash off. Just moving it into a, a body bag, just moving it from one place to another, carrying it out of the water. And in this case, there were some things that actually helped us quite a bit. The duct tape around the eyes, some had slid down around the neck. There was some like screen type rubber spline, I guess they call it, that was found around her feet, as well as some nautical rope that had a very interesting design to it. I believe there was a plastic bag that actually we determined came from Publix. So we were lucky in some respects that there was some evidence that we could do some things with, possibly for fingerprints, DNA, trace evidence, those types of things. And then we also did the area search. Where did the body come in from? Did the body come in from the shoreline? Was it dropped off a boat? Did it jump off the bridge? And so now you have to sit and try to figure out what's your best area to go search. Most of our good evidence came from the body itself. One of the ways that crime scene investigators or coroner's offices will identify human remains if they've been in water is called degloving, which is taking the skin off of the hands and then rolling the fingerprints to get latent evidence with using your own hand in each finger. Identification took a couple days. We were lucky in this case that we were able to get usable prints and found out that this person had been arrested, that the prints were looked to be a match, and found out that it was Misty Morse. So the victim was Misty April Morse. She was 22, blue-eyed, really friendly, very gregarious young woman. We were roughly the same age, and um, everything that I've heard about her has been very positive. She seemed like a girl that was still close to her mom and close to her family, but she liked the party. There's a lot of young people that are that way. Until they find what they want to do in life, they're out having a good time. The unfortunate part about it is sometimes the good time that you're having and things that you get involved in can be dangerous. A lot of people say, you know, it's, it's, it's who you're with. She just hadn't found her way, and she got involved in some things and with some people that she shouldn't have and, and led to her demise. Tragedy is very clear. A young woman's dead body bound and violently thrown in the water. Obviously, a grisly murder has taken place. But besides the victim's name, investigators have little else to go on. Who would want to kill Misty Morse? Once the person is identified as Misty Morse, now people are assigned to go find out everything they can about the victim. You know, who are they? What's their background? Particularly, what have they done in the last 24 to 48 hours? Where were they? Where did they go? She had a number of male friends in particular that she would spend time with who had, I guess, a, you could argue a questionable background. And so police had their work cut out for them. She had been at a party. She had not come home, which was not out of the ordinary, according to her mother, that she would leave and sometimes not come that night. Might not be seen again until the next morning. But for her to not hear from her on into the next day and the day after, as we talked to her, she said, I was starting to get worried and I was going to give you a call. These kinds of crimes are rarely random. It's, it's really someone that the victim knew, either intimately or at least as, a, as an acquaintance. They started to deep dive into the people that she knew, that she hung around with routinely. 
So one who stands out, for example, was Teddy Underwood. He was a, a guy who already had multiple felony arrests in the state of Florida, battery, sexual assault. So, you know, right off the bat, you know, police, of course, would raise their eyebrows a bit. They interviewed another fellow named Bobby who they learned had her driver's license ID, which also seemed a little bit strange. Both of those gentlemen seemed like they were very cooperative, and over time, the homicide detectives were able to realize, okay, they don't necessarily check all the boxes of what we're looking for. Brent Huck becomes kind of the focus of the investigation because of interviews with people that have said they had a rocky relationship. There was some violence prior in a relationship. Do you saw me swear the statement you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so you got it. I didn't. Brent Huck was a 28-year-old charter boat fishing captain. You military or what? Yeah, I was in the military for four years. What are you doing? And he told a lot of people that he was uh, ex-Navy SEAL. He was not a Navy SEAL, but continued to tell people that he was a Navy SEAL. He had an interesting background. He came from a family, to my understanding, that had financial security. He had a very confident um, air about him. <laughs> he seemed like one of these people that sort of felt like the door was always going to open for him, um, and the world was kind of his oyster. So you didn't really get the sense that he was a really hard scrabble kind of guy that was, you know, working his way up from the bottom type of situation. Right now, we're kind of at a loss. We're grasping the straws, trying to get any information we can on Misty, and uh, we feel you're probably a pretty good source of all what she does and who she hangs out with and this kind of stuff. Brent was very cooperative in the beginning. You're not in any trouble. You're not under arrest. You're free to leave at any time you want. Oh, I'm not under arrest. You're on your free will. More than one house. That's when I was last one. My first question was both oh, like, yeah. We just we just appreciate you coming down and filling in the blanks. Okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's that's what we need is someone who knows her. Best way to describe him, very confident, arrogant person who probably didn't care about too many people other than himself. Even coming in to talk to us originally, a little bit of arrogance there. Now, some people come in and want to talk to us because they want to find out what we know. A, am I a suspect? B, what does the police know? And how close are they? The second thing is some people come in and want to talk to us because they believe they're smarter than we are. And he falls in to those categories. So what do you think? My first reaction, she got in this office, she couldn't handle she got into either somebody got hot with her and, and flipped, or she picked up the wrong John. I mean, I don't know if she's for sure if she's working over in the over that bar, but if she's walking around with that much money, the only thing, and that's the only thing she could be doing is helping. In one of his early interviews, he told police that he had actually talked to her the night that police believed that she was killed. When was the last time you actually talked to her? On the phone or anything like that? Wednesday. Wednesday morning, night. What he said was she had told friends that she was pregnant with his child. And he was already in a serious relationship with someone and was very upset that she would tell people that. Whether or not it was true, he was upset about it. And so he told police he had called her to basically chew her out on the phone and confront her about, you know, what she was telling people. Clearly, she cared for him and they had been dating on and off again for quite some time. What was your relationship with her? We started dating uh, from the time I met her. Um, she came to live with me in my house for a while, or stay with me in my house, not really live. The relationship deteriorated, and then it all actually deteriorated. We got, I broke up with her, and she slept with my roommate. At that point, I, I was just, I was done with her. I did go to sleep with her after that. What about other boyfriend? She dated some guy, some hockey. She said she was dating some hockey player. That's, and I... We never got a name out of her. Um, from around here? She's up in Orlando, apparently, one of the pro teams. I don't, I don't know. It's just I talked to her enough to get 
There were different checkboxes that they were looking for. With Brent Huck, you had someone who knew how to tie a nautical-style knot, a cowhitch knot. He has a boat. He has the ability to do this. In talking to people, he has been known to be violent in the past. The last person to talk to her was Brent Huck. He said, I talked to her and uh, that he basically uh, was angry with her and told her, quit telling people that you're pregnant. Stop it. So is there a motive? Yeah, motive kind of pops up. As they're going through the evidence, they're finding some hairs on the tape, and they were sent off, and they came back, and they were canine. Brent Huck had a black-haired dog. Well, now bells and whistles go off. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. The case is slim, but with some viable suspects in mind, investigators now turn to finding whatever evidence they can. Brent Huck fully cooperates. If it can help find Misty's killer, he says he has nothing to hide. He willingly allows police to search his house and his boat. Forensics has become very helpful to the police. It's also a hindrance in some respects because investigators rely on it. Oh, we'll wait for the DNA. What if it doesn't come back? So you still have to do old-fashioned police work. So detectives get to Brett Huck's doorstep, and the answers to the door, they find him to be pretty open in terms of talking with them. I mean, he didn't slam the door in their face, and immediately, you know, let's say he wanted a, an attorney. Brent was very cooperative. He actually allowed us to do a consent search of his house. Eventually, we came back and did a second search with a search warrant. You know, as time went along, he was not quite as happy with us, and, and I think he realized that we were starting to look at him really hard as a suspect. In searching his home, we start to see duct tape, and it's white duct tape, which is a little different. Most people have the, the gray or silver type of duct tape, but he has white duct tape. Doesn't mean it's the same duct tape, but it's interesting. Duct tape, since it has a sticky side to it, is a good collector of trace evidence. So potentially you can get fingerprints off of duct tape on the sticky side as well as the smooth side. If there are hairs or fibers that are stuck to the duct tape while it's being pulled off of the roll in the environment it was originally in, that would be a really good thing to look for. The tape, they believe, had been wrapped around her eyes, her nose, and her mouth. On that tape, they found black hairs. As they're going through the evidence, they're finding some hairs on the tape, and they were sent off, and they came back, and they were canine. Brent Huck had a dog, a, a black-haired dog. Quick glance, it looks very similar to the type of hair that was found on the tape around her head. And we find a piece of rope that's in the river underneath his boat that has the same markings on it. It is a rope that's generally used by people that are into boats. It's not something you or I would buy. You had someone who had access to a boat. He owned a boat as a charter boat captain. So when you start to put those pieces together, yeah, your gut feeling and intuition, I didn't like what he said in the interview, or these things were wrong, but then you start putting physical evidence with it. Well, you know, now bells and whistles go off there. Was it possible to take that hair, send it off, get standards from his dog, and be able to match the dog as far as did the hair come from that particular dog, or at least from that breed? Can we match that? 
You know, is it possible? We've never done it. Lab tests take time. So as you're building this case, you may get one lab result back, but you're waiting for another lab result back, and you're waiting for cell phone records to come back. We don't have the availability to just hand something to a lab, and then, you know, in 12 hours, we have a, a response back. This letter that Misty's mom wrote on the one-year anniversary of her death, she wrote a letter to the editor that was particularly chilling. And I remember specifically in that letter, her mom wrote about how frustrated she was that, you know, we're one year in, uh, Misty's killer was still not brought to justice. You know, he was still basically running around free, enjoying life. And um, I remember the haunting words in particular, she said she hated to be cold and wet and she was left in the river. And that really spoke to me and I felt that, that sense of frustration. No one had basically made any arrests yet. And so I think that sense of frustration was really palpable. So a big problem that we see today is the CSI effect. These shows make the process much easier, much prettier. Uh, the time that officers put in on TV is nowhere near the years that you have to put in on a case. Why did it take so long? First, we had to go through the evidence. We had to find out where that evidence could come from, just like with the nylon rope. Who sells it? Where can you buy it? Did he possibly buy it? Is there a... And we actually found a link between him and the store that sells it. So a lot of this case dealt with the fact of, of building these things together, of putting these pieces. This is a circumstantial case. He doesn't confess. So we have to build this case and present it to a prosecutor in a way that the prosecutor goes, okay, we like it, we'll take this case. It was about two years, and that is, I would say, about 95 to 99% due to the length of time it takes for that DNA testing to come back. It took that long because it was a very advanced sort of technology and testing that needed to take place. And so during this time, you did have that frustration of everyone involved of, you know, is that testing going to come back with what we hope it will come back with? They weren't even positive, you know, that they would get the results that they needed. They just hoped and believed that they would. I think the dog DNA was the final straw after we had received all the other forensic evidence that made us decide that we could go forward with the case. It was a very, very strong circumstantial case, but again, you never know what a jury's gonna do. Years go by before Brett Huck is finally arrested for killing Misty Morse and sent to trial. But while the scant evidence may all look to point to one person, Huck still professes his innocence. The prosecutors will need to prove that he is the killer, and that may be an uphill battle. This is a criminal case. The defendant is charged with the crimes of first-degree felony murder and kidnapping. Some years before this case, I was assigned a case involving Brett Huck's father. He was accused of lewd conduct in front of some children, and I was assigned to prosecute that case, and we did successfully prosecute that case. And Brent Huck's father was sent to prison. Jump ahead, we were trying Brent Huck. And Mr. Huck Sr. was in the courtroom during his son's trial. We kind of acknowledged each other. And actually, he seemed kind of friendly towards me. So, you know, I don't know. I'm, here I am prosecuting his son for first-degree murder, and he seemed to be fairly warm. State, you may proceed when ready. More than 15 months before uh, Misty Morris's death, uh, she was involved in a relationship with the defendant, Brent Huff. The state had a really tough 
case to present here because there was no smoking gun. You know, you're talking purely circumstantial evidence. Serious relationship ended approximately 15 months before her death because of her having interaction or, or socializing with Mr. Huck's roommate. The relationship did continue, however. They still saw each other. They still had intercourse with each other up until the time of her death. That plays a role in this case because Mr. Huck had, in October of the year prior to Ms. Morse's death, become involved in another relationship. And that relationship was with Michelle Dwyer. You have one piece of evidence relies on another piece, relies on another piece, relies on another piece. So you have this very intricate puzzle piece that they are laying out. None of these pieces, I think, on their own really um, have that much weight. It's when you put them all together. You'll learn that the last two phone calls that Misty Morse received were from him. During the interview with Mr. Huck, he agreed to allow his, his home to be searched. And the police, when they got there, they started finding things. One of the first things they found was a piece of wadded up white duct tape. And they found a piece of screen spline manufactured out of the same machine as the screen spline that was found on Miss Morse's body. There were no eyewitnesses. Of course, the strategy in this case, it was to gather as much forensic matching as we could between the items that were found in Brent Huck's parents' house and the items on Misty Morris. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Again, I'm Greg Eisenmenger. I have the pleasure of representing Mr. Huck at this trial. The state's case in this is a, what we call a circumstantial evidence case. The first step is to analyze the evidence. It's been my experience that the defense will come out of the evidence and then see how that impacts the state's ability to prove their charge. This case is predicated solely on the fact that Ms. Morse was found tied up and disposed of in the river, which is a terrible thing, but it does not mean that the state can prove that even a murder took place or that a kidnapping took place to the standard that the law requires, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. And at the conclusion of this case, we're going to ask you to do the duty that you swore to, apply that standard of proof to the evidence, and return a verdict of not guilty. A circumstantial case, you have to make sure that you've got all the circumstances lined up, hopefully a significant number of them, and that that matches the things that you found at the crime scene. Let's talk about the two main ropes. Exhibit 21, which uh, purports to be from the victim, and exhibit 73. I had started off with the general examination. They were consistent visually. I then attempted to put the ends, the damaged ends, back together, kind of like to put pieces of a puzzle together. It's called a fracture match exam in our laboratory to see if I could say that they were at one time a single piece. Because of the conditions of the ends, they'd either been melted or they were fraying so badly, I was unable to do that particular exam. Um, at that point, I went into a general construction exam where not only visually but microscopically, I looked at the, the construction of the two pieces of rope as well as the fiber components that were making up the rope. Okay. And what observations did you make during the uh, microscopic visual examination? The two pieces of rope were found to be consistent in all areas that I examined. You said that they, in use of language, could have had a common origin. Is that correct? That's correct. That's significantly different than does have a common origin, correct? That's correct. Can you come to an opinion that you can share with us and share with the jury about the 
similarities between State's Exhibit 20, again, the tape that came off the victim's eyes, and State's Exhibit 74, which was the tape that came from the defendant's residence. I learned a lot about duct tape. The duct tape was examined by forensic experts, and that was one part of the case that I handled. I learned more about duct tape than I've ever, ever wanted to know. Based upon the correspondence of all of the major components of the two tapes, as well as the correspondence of the major chem chemical characteristics of the two tapes, uh, I would conclude that those two tapes were indeed the same type of tape, the same grade of tape, and most probably made by the same manufacturer. However, I really cannot conclude uh, one way or the other whether those two tapes uh, either did or did not come from the same roll or, or the same batch of tape. Now, you have no way of knowing how much of this tape was distributed in Brevard County in the year 2000, do you? No, I don't. So we could have thousands of rolls, we could have hundreds of rolls, we could have tens of thousands of rolls. I would be more than willing to say that I would be comfortable that it would be at least thousands of rolls. For two years, we had the screen spline examined. What opinion were you able to reach concerning the exhibit that came from the garage the defendant was standing at and the spline that came from the victim, Misty Morse? After completing my microscopic examinations, I was able to determine that these two items were like one another with respect to all of their class characteristics, which would include color, texture, width, thickness, and the extrusion striae present on both of them were consistent along their entire lengths. So based on that, I was able to conclude that they were produced by the same manufacturer in the same manufacturing plant and on the ex same extrusion line. It turned out that the screen spline on Misty's body and the screen spline that was found in Brent Huck's house actually was manufactured by the same company in the same what they call extrusion line. That was something that was very significant, but it took us time to find that out. Defense and prosecution definitely use forensic evidence differently. Oftentimes, the defense can't contest the evidence that the state presents in terms of the forensic evidence. If the defense can't find a witness that will challenge the state's witness, then they fall back to, was the evidence collected properly? How did the police handle the evidence before it got to the laboratory? The defense, they would sort of attack each piece to try to damage the credibility of every piece of evidence that they entered into the trial, to try to just chip away at it, knowing that every piece was crucial to the overall story that was trying to be told. Interestingly enough, there were also some hairs recovered that were dog hairs. That was really damning for this case. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. The prosecution's argument hinges on the forensic science and the accumulation of that evidence stacks up each new piece on top of the other, raising the perception of Brent Huck's guilt. They found the rope, the tape, and the rubber spline all in his possession. He has the means, he has the motive, 
and he has the dog. But like a house of cards, a mere breeze can send the whole trial crashing down. Can the prosecution prove their fragile case beyond a shadow of a doubt? This is state's exhibit uh, 54. This is a photograph of the uh, Rottweiler Shepherd mixed breed dog. On the tape and on the rope that was recovered from Miss Morse, there were also some hairs recovered that were dog hairs. Did you perform a comparison of the known hairs that were from a German Rottweiler mix associated with Mr. Huck with these unknown or questioned samples that, that are in State's Exhibit 103 that were taken from the tape and wrote found on the uh, victim, Misty Morse? Yes, I first tested the Q1 and Q5 samples. Okay. And then later I tested the uh, hair and hair and compared the two. The doggy DNA was definitely very significant. We wanted to match it to the dog that Brent Huck had in his house. We went out to California to an expert who could do the DNA on the dog hair. We started working on uh, developing a system of DNA profiling for dogs. Uh, DNA profiling to determine the parentage of cattle and horses and so on was pretty routine by this time to uh, verify that the pedigree of animals was in fact correct, was being recorded correctly. And uh, we saw dogs as perhaps the next big group of animals where this was going to become sort of routine. And so uh, we developed a DNA profiling system using the kinds of markers they use in, in humans, same type of thing, to do uh, parentage testing in dogs. And did you compare the results of the two to each other? Yes, I did. And what conclusion or opinions did you reach about the two results, Stacey Exhibit 98 to Stacey Exhibit 102? Uh, they had the same haplotype, the same mitochondrial sequence. She used the mitochondrial DNA, which is the maternal line of DNA. So it's not an absolute match. And we learned that dog hair, you can't match it to an individual dog, but you can match it to a breed, and you can match the mitochondrial DNA. And were you able to obtain a mitochondrial profile on those hair samples? Yes. And what opinion do you reach from that, from that observation? My opinion is that in the dog population represented by my database, you expect to see that haplotype in about roughly 10% of dogs. And would you also expect not to see it in, in approximately 90% of dogs? Approximately, yes. DNA evidence is the gold standard of forensic evidence. It is the most accurate in identifying a person. If you apply the same science that determines human DNA, it's the same science. At the time, this was extremely revolutionary and cutting edge to be able to match a dog hair that's on a tape that's been in the water for three days on a victim's face with the hair of the suspect's dog to be able to determine that this dog matches within 10% of all the dogs in the world matches the hair that was found on this tape. That was really damning for this case. Ma'am, is it possible an examination for mitochondrial DNA from those other hair samples may have revealed the hairs from another animal, another dog? Of course. The dog hair DNA was interesting, but what you have to realize is the actual DNA result merely put the dog in a category of dogs. Uh, there were probably 10,000 dogs in Brevard County. 
uh, that fit that same DNA. People hear the word DNA and they think of it as a genetic fingerprint. So if an expert is allowed to say the DNA matches, even though you're bringing out the fact it doesn't really match, it you know, places it in a category. But uh, juries see a tiny bit of evidence and jump to wild conclusions. And so a lot of times they will pay a lot more attention to things that they probably shouldn't. I was thinking the judge shouldn't have allowed it. Defense, you have some motions? Judge, uh, first I move for judgment of acquittal. What they did at trial is they tried to attack our charge on some legal grounds, a judgment of acquittal, which means that the evidence wasn't enough to get to the jury. So they attacked it legally. And I might say that's where Mr. Eisenminger excels. Essentially, what their case comes down to is because it does not exclude Mr. Hawk, they want to argue to both the court and to the jury that that is the functional equivalent of including Mr. Hawk. It means that he must be the only person who is guilty because he is the only person that is charged. There's nobody else who is being presented. Now, we did present, as part of our reasonable hypothesis of innocence, the fact that there were a number of other people who could have equally committed this crime. We know Teddy Underwood was interviewed. No one asked him about any of these items. We know Bobby Cooper was interviewed, and no one asked him about any of these items. So again, has the state introduced any evidence to indicate that other people other than Mr. Hupp had access to the same exact items? The answer is no. There are some other people looked at and crossed off that were with her within that time frame or had talked to her, and we were able to put alibis to them or clear them out by evidence. The burden of proof in the state is much higher. So your defense is to show that there are equally reasonable hypotheses of other people being guilty. And therefore, there are reasonable hypotheses of innocence. The state attorney stands up here and says that all of the evidence was tied to the defendant and no one else. None of the evidence was tied to the defendant. He is merely one of the possibilities along with all of Brevard County because all they established is that there were three things found in the defendant's home that were manufactured by three things that were found on the deceased body. And all of the testimony is they couldn't tell you how much of that was available to Brevard County. So they haven't excluded anything. Uh, with the uh, dog here, their evidence really only places it uh, within, I think, 10% of the total dog population of the United States. There's absolutely no evidence how many German Shepherd, Rottweiler mixes there are in Brevard County alone. We went through every one of their witnesses. The only level that the state's evidence reached to is that it did not exclude the state's theory. But it likewise did not exclude any other theory that was opposite. The facts themselves have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The most that they've come to on all of these points is it doesn't exclude. That doesn't even reach a preponderance of the evidence standard much less a reasonable doubt on any of this. They simply have not met the burden. 
We have the burden of proving the crime with which the defendant was charged was committed and that the defendant is the person who committed the crime. When you think about it, prosecuting attorneys have a heavier burden, which we're willing to accept, than anyone else in the courtroom because we need to make sure that everything is operating properly, that all the right decisions are made, and that nobody makes any serious mistakes. Because if the defense attorney makes a mistake or the judge makes a mistake, and it's a serious mistake, you can get a conviction, but that case is gonna come back on appeal, and nobody wants that. What we have to prove is that what we allege happened beyond a reasonable doubt, which means that there are no reasonable doubts out there. The true reasonable hypothesis of innocence is a reasonable doubt. And that's where there gets confusing. When you start using language like reasonable doubt and reasonable hypothesis of innocence, people are going to get confused that those are two different things, and they're not two different things. They're exactly the, the same thing. What he's saying is, I didn't do it. This is how it happened. That's my reasonable doubt. And we, we are saying, oh, no, this, 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 and this show that's not what happened. This is what happened. And we've shown you that beyond a reasonable doubt. I certainly recognized uh, early on this was going to be a circumstantial evidence case. Certainly recognized an anticipated motion for judgment of acquittal. There are issues there. How many times do you get a case where you have five or six pieces of evidence that come directly from a suspect's residence or where he is living that match your crime scene. So it was a very, very strong circumstantial case, but what about the judge and the legal issues? How's that gonna work out? Away from the jury, Brent Huck's defense moves for acquittal, expertly citing case law and arguing that the state has not properly met the burden of proof. It will be up to the judge whether this trial continues or if Brent Huck can now walk free. I think it's clear to everybody that there have been better and stronger cases. I'm looking to see uh, where the state's gone as far as meeting the particular things they need to meet. And in that light, frankly, they have met their burden of going forward and taking it to the jury. A motion for judgment of acquittal denied. State may proceed. Thank you. Ladies and, and gentlemen, it's a good day today. We're going to get to resolve this case. You're going to resolve this case. There are so many facets, dramatic and emotionally compelling facets to this case. You have a, a suspect who's, you know, for two years has been basically walking around the community. So there was this sense, you know, this thought of, okay, if it took two years for them to be able to arrest this guy, is justice going to be served here? You're given an instruction and, and to a large extent, this is a circumstantial case. And circumstantial evidence can be used like other evidence if you believe the conclusory nature of what the evidence by itself or in combination tells you. And that's what we're asking you to do in this case is look at this case as a total package. Closing argument in this case was just to bring home, again, how many circumstances, how many pieces of evidence, if you want to call it that, linked Brent Huck to this case. Now, the defense suggests that people blindfold and gag 
dead people. And the state suggests that's not reasonable. So we have this, this body that the doctor tells you, based on his experience and common sense, tells us it's a homicide. But you need to look at the rest of the evidence. And I'm talking about the dog hair. Dog was shedding hair. Hair got on tape. Hair got on rope. And who has a dog, a Sheba-like dog? Him. And that's what you have to believe beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm asking you to weigh this evidence out and do justice. And at the end of this case, when you've done justice, I'm asking you to return the verdict that speaks justice that he is the killer. He killed Misty Morse. We had defeated all the legal arguments. We had presented every piece of evidence that we had. We didn't leave anything unaddressed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the sheriff's office has all sorts of wonderful procedures that were followed sometimes in this case, but other times not. You can't find what you don't look for. And that's the story of this case. No one else. Huck is the only person they looked for Tate. He's the only person they looked for rope, slime, clothing, that no one ever inquired about this proves that Mr. Huck is the only person that could have these things in all of Brevard County. That's really convenient, isn't it? The standard jury instruction on circumstantial evidence specifically says the state has the burden to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, eliminating all reasonable hypothesis. And it goes on to explain that there is one hypothesis that is consistent with guilt, but there's another hypothesis that is consistent with innocence. You must choose the hypothesis that is consistent with innocence. I, too ask you to speak a verdict that speaks the truth. And there is no other verdict that is possible other than not guilty. Thank you. We wanted to focus on the standard of proof and try to get the jury to follow the law. Is the jury gonna accept this case? It's a jury. You never know what a jury's gonna do. But I will tell you this from a, from a prosecutor's point of view, waiting for a verdict when the jury comes back it is a heart pounding event for everybody i remember seeing brent huck he was sitting outside on the this wooden bench outside the the courtroom waiting for the jury to decide his fate and he was just casually talking to his family and flipping through guns and ammo magazine the same way you would if you were sitting in a doctor's office just waiting to be called back that feeling of i just have to get through this so i can go on with the rest of my life you know, that wasn't the feeling that you would get, what you would expect from someone who has the weight of the world hanging over their shoulders. Understand we have a verdict? In the circuit court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Brevard County, Florida, State of Florida versus Brent Robert Huck. We, the jury, find as follows as to count one in this case. The defendant, Brent Robert Huck, is guilty of first degree felony murder. We, the jury, find as follows as to count two in this case. The defendant, Brent Robert Huck, is guilty of kidnapping. So say we all in Vieira, Brevard County, Florida, the first day of April, 2003. The jury decided that Brent Huck was guilty as charged of first-degree murder and kidnapping. He got life in prison. 
I've been doing this too long to be surprised by anything that a jury does. So uh, I would never use the terminology uh, surprising when I'm talking about a, a verdict. I would stick with it was disappointing. The accumulation of all the evidence. He's got the dog, got the dog hair, the DNA matches up. A normal person sitting on jury is going to go, what's the chances that there's another dog? I think justice was served, and I also think there's a certain amount of poetic justice in the story. When you think about the fact that Misty actually gave Brent Huck that dog, she gave him the dog as a puppy. So the fact, I think, that she gave him that dog from a place of love, and ultimately that helped to basically bring her killing to justice, I think there's a poetic nature to that, too. The case against Brent Huck came down to two things, science and the laws of evidence. It may take time, but ultimately, advanced forensic tools and technology can help connect the dots. Brent Huck is currently serving his two concurrent life sentences at Columbia Annex, Florida. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another edition of Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. New episodes of the show air every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Court TV, just part of the best legal coverage you can find on television. If you have a digital antenna, you can find Court TV with a rescan of your antenna and get access to all of our gavel-to-gavel -gavel legal coverage. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for downloading. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.